a lot of people are excited about space travel and I'm terrified by it because I know that all of my favorite smells and flavors on Earth come from microbes. And if we don't decide to bring them on our future space travels, we'll never experience them in that future. So think about the flavors of chocolate and coffee and wine and beer and cheese, also the smells of soil. All of these are from microbes. So we're going to have to decide what microbes come with us to space. What are the microbes that will produce the best flavors of beer? What are the microbes that can withstand those stresses of space travel? We don't have all of the, we don't have the total understanding of what microbes exist on this planet. And I want to know what the best microbes are before we start choosing who gets to go on our next mission to Mars. Welcome to The Disruptors, the podcast about the future of all of us, where we look at the technologies, trends, and societal norms shaping our collective future. Hear the world's top minds share their insights and predictions on the convergence, direction, and ethics of exponential technologies transforming life as we know it. You can learn more and stay up to date at disruptors.fm. You are what you eat, literally. Today, we've got Anne Madden on the program. She's a microbiologist, inventor, science communicator, and CSO and founder of La Chancia, an innovative food tech company focused on the science of microorganisms and making epic, alternatively flavored beer. She's a public speaker, three-time TED presenter, and has been featured on the Wall Street Journal, National Geographic, PBS NewsHour, Newsweek, and many more. Her research focuses on understanding microbial communities. In today's episode, we'll discuss its challenges in the 21st century, why the antibacteria movement has been so harmful for humans, what we can do about bioterrorism as it evolves. Before we jump to the episode, consider supporting disruptors or sharing it or passing this over to somebody. If you want to help us achieve more with this, and now without further ado, I give you Anne Madden. Are you going organic, keto, paleo, some type of diet for incredible performance? You want the healthiest foods delivered to your doorstep fast and easy? Well, you should check out today's show sponsor, Thrive Market, the best organic online grocery store in the States. They've got gluten-free lentils and breads, chemical-free cleaners, organic coconut milk, all at up to 50% off delivered to your door with a subscription to Thrive Market's awesome online health store. Listeners get a bonus 25% off their first order, up to 20 bucks when you use our link, disruptors.fm slash thrive. Check it out. They've got just about everything at rock bottom prices for, for best in class quality, regardless of how you're eating. And I know I switch it up. I'm sure you guys do as well disruptors.fm slash thrive for more details. I spent all day today writing. I love coffee, but I hate jitters. I was at Starbucks and I'm a little bit bouncing off the walls. That's why I'm pumped to tell you guys about today's show sponsor, Four Sigmatics Lion's Mane Blend. If you haven't tried Lion's Mane or the other awesome mushrooms that this Finnish company is putting out there, I definitely recommend it. Between the podcast, books, startup coaching, and life as a dad, I need to be switched on and creative in a big way. And Four Sigmatic's proprietary blend, it's got only 40 milligrams of caffeine for creative, natural, drug-free productivity to power your day without the crash, side effects, or addiction. And you know what? The flavor, it's awesome. Listeners, if you go to disruptors.fm slash FS, you'll save 10% off anything from Four Sigmatic. They've got some incredible superfood blends. I recommend checking out their Four Mushroom blend as well. And you know what? You'll get free shipping anywhere in the U.S. Again, that's disruptors.fm slash FS. 
Use offer code DISRUPTORS to save 10% and to take it to the next level. Tim Ferriss recommends this to everybody. Jonathan Levy, one of the awesome guests we had, our Superhuman Academy all-star, he loves it as well. And it's powering elite performers like you everywhere. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things. Not because they are easy, but because they are hard. So, Anne, the first place I wanted to start is why in God's name somebody wanted to get into dis- to researching the disgustingly germy ickiness that is microbes. What was the deal? Oh, man. The start of how I fell in love with microbes, because I think that's how I'd like to frame it, yes. um, in a tropical rainforest. So, I was uh, a researcher in college working on poison dart frogs. Yes, poison dart frogs were like my favorite animal at the zoo. This is exciting. Sorry, I had to jump I had to jump in there cuz I love poison dart frogs. And I mean everyone who doesn't love a poison dart frog? They're beautiful colors, they're charismatic, they make a tiny sound like a duck, like an eh, eh, eh. And if you're uh, not careful, they'll kill you. They've got that extra appeal. <laughs> right, they're dangerous and they live in one of the most beautiful places on earth, the rainforest. And so at the time I was in college and I was uh, dipping my toes into what research biology might be. And I fell in love with the rainforest because every day is a new adventure. Everything is trying to kill you. It's unbelievable to walk among these trees that feel like a cathedral. And so I just, I loved this research experience, but there's no tropical rainforest up in Massachusetts. So when I came back to Massachusetts to finish out my college uh, at Wellesley College, I was looking at what other research opportunities there might be in biology. And I'd taken a microbiology course and I started working with a researcher in microbiology. And it was then that I realized that I was actually surrounded by a jungle in my own home, but that that jungle was microscopic. And so the place that I thought that was so mundane was full of new species that we only knew about 10% of. And so if I just uncovered what microbes were nearest us and what they could do, I could find not only new species, but also species that can help make our world better. And so that was the beginning of a lifelong love affair. And like the jungle that they're burning down in Brazil, we're trying to kill those microbes in the jungle around us, so to speak. How does I that think, make you feel? <laughs> I um, So not all microbes are wonderful. And I want to state that. I'm a huge proponent for most of microbial life. And I think that oftentimes we get oversimplified when we talk about microorganisms. So the, the microbial moments that people think of that they have are those with strep throat, that microbe that gave you that horrible infection or the microbe that caused the flu or the microbe that mildewed your favorite fruit that you wanted to make into a fruit salad. But really, our lives are full of microbial moments that we don't think about as being microbial. And these are often the best moments in our life. So when you have that first cup of coffee in the morning, that amazing sip that energizes you for the rest of the day, that's brought to you by microorganisms that fermented those coffee cherries thousands of miles away. And when you put on denim jeans, there is a microbe in a factory that's actually helping produce that denim and that cotton thread. And then say you have your own infection and you pop an antibiotic, it's likely that that antibiotic actually came from a soil microorganism. Say you call your parent on the phone, there's a good chance that your parent's life is being extended by statins, cholesterol-lowering medications that also come from microbes in the soil. So our lives are filled with these rich microbial moments that we adore, we just don't thank the microbes for. 
And where the oversimplification come when people equated microbes and germs with bad? Because I feel like that's led to a lot of the health degeneration we've seen lately. Yeah, I think that's a really great question that I'm not sure I have the answer to. I think right now our scenario is that it's like we were introducing aliens to a planet. And we said, okay, we have animals on these planets. And they include tigers and sharks. And the aliens say, oh my gosh, animals are horrible. They all have these sharp teeth. They can kill you. Why would you ever like animals? And it's like, no, 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 no. Just go one step further and learn about kitten videos and learn about pet dogs and animals that we use for food and to make our lives better. And so I feel like there's just an information gap that occurs right now for learning about some of the microbes that get our attention because they have such devastating consequences to us. And we're just missing the fuller story. So how do we make germ sex sexy? <laughs> hmm, how do we make germ sexy? I think we make anything sexy by making it exciting and relevant. And with beer. <laughs> that's what you're doing, I hear. And beer, right. That's How did I not follow up with that answer? <laughs> so one of the sexiest microbes that exist, I think, are those microbes that make beer. And some of my research is involved in finding new microbes that make new beer flavors and make scalable sour beer technology. And we find them in wasps. So that, I think, is a compelling part of the narrative because it's not just that there are new microbial species that can help us. It's that they're located and hiding in the most unremarkable places. Sour beer that stings literally. How did you even think to to look for this? And how can we, building off of that, find other areas in this microbial world where we can have wonderfully interesting and valuable creations, not just beer, as great as beer is? <laughs> yeah, so I'll, I'll start by saying that I take a systems-based approach to finding microorganisms that can help make our lives better. And so that's different than when we think about a synthetic biology approach, when we're going to take a known microorganism and get it to do something that it doesn't normally do. In a systems-based approach, it's more about finding the microbe that exists out there in the wild that already does what we want it to do. And so innovation becomes in the discovery phase. For looking at finding new beer microbes, we took this systems-based approach, um, a group of us working out of North Carolina State University and then out of our company, Lachancia, where we looked to nature and we said, let's throw out all of our assumptions about what we think yeast can do for us. So yeast right now are the microbes that have made beer for us for a long, long time. And there are understandings that the yeast that we use in the lab or that we use in the brewery are the best yeast. They're the only yeast that can make these beers without off flavors. And so we threw out that assumption and looked to nature and said, where are there diverse yeasts that exist? And what other yeasts could be out there that could do new things? Where does it make sense to look to nature? And where does it make sense to try to engineer? Great question. So we looked to nature to find new yeast because we found that there are animals out there that can bioprospect for us, that can be biological drones that do part of the hunting for us. So it turns out that paper wasps and hornets, among some other insects, are uniquely interested into certain aromas in the world, fruity aromas and sugary aromas, because those help them track where their next sugar source is. We also like fruity and floral aromas, 
And it turns out that many of these aromas are made by yeast and the yeast are calling out to the wasps, basically asking them to be airplanes that provide access to new sugar sources for them. So there's this relationship between wasps and yeast, the wasps, airplanes, helping move the yeasts in the world and the yeasts helping the wasps find sugary, sweet things. And so we took advantage of this system by looking to wasps for new yeasts. And in the process, found those that make remarkable sour beer. I feel like, oh, go ahead. But the question is always, what else can this do besides make new beer? So there's- What's the exciting million dollar question? (laughs) So there are different things. I'm going to say that using similar approaches, looking to nature for targeting microbes. In the past, I've worked with biotech companies to find microbes in the soil that can produce novel antibiotics. And I think with the current crisis of antibiotic-resistant bacteria, we know that it's critical now more than ever to find new antibiotics. Many of these are created by microbes in the soil that are basically at war with other microbes. So they're producing these chemicals and compounds. And that's what humans harness to help us fight infections. How do you think about probiotics, antibiotics, prebiotics? I know right now on my shelf, I've got some probiotics and I know for a fact it came out of the soil because there's some there's some solid stuff in the soil ones. But talk to me about that dynamic and then how people are using that or harnessing that for not just antibiotics, but for overall health. Yeah. So I'm a big proponent of describing and researching what microbes can do and how powerful they can be. However, I think that right now there is incredible enthusiasm over what microbes might be able to do and perhaps not enough critical eyes. The kombucha craze. (laughs) Well, I'll take a step I'll take a step back and say that while some microbes can benefit human health, not all microbes can. And that what I see right now as a concerning trend is that there are companies taking advantage of the public's lack of understanding of microbial communities to put forth some snake oil products. And I'm concerned about that because I'm worried that soon people will start equating the word probiotic or microbial supplement with something that's not effective, that's inefficacious. And that day, it's going to hurt all microbial researchers everywhere, and it's going to hurt our future innovation potential. So there are probiotics that have been shown to increase health. But (laughs) our microbial community, like the gut, for instance, is What What do you think about these testing companies, the gut microbiome testing companies? I think a question becomes with any microbial testing company, it's that what does that testing really reveal to us? If you'd like a survey of a list of what species are in your gut, are in a location, then I think the technology is perfectly adapted to tell you that. These are the species that exist within you. But oftentimes we want to know more than just that list of species. We want to know what they're doing, how they're impacting our health, whether they're stable, whether they're going to impact our day-to-day activities, if we can change them. And those aren't necessarily questions that a lot of the testing companies can provide helpful information for. And I think sometimes there seems to be a misalignment between what people hope they're getting from these companies and what they're actually able to get with the current technology. Because there is so much promise. Your gut is your second or arguably first brain. They're very, very intertwined. Undeniably, our future... Is in your belly. (laughs) (laughs) The microbial community of our body is critical to our health. We just don't know all the ways 
that it is critical and how to manipulate or harness this information in order to create the outcomes we're looking for. What do you think about these fecal transplants? I've seen some really interesting stuff, which is disgusting to hear about. But a lot of the a lot of health conditions seem to be results of bad microbiomes, not balanced. A lot of things on the order of gut disorders, autism, other things being caused by oftentimes triggered by the epigenetics happening in the stomach, triggering certain things within their DNA. That's what it seems like from a lay person's perspective that's merely talked to the smart folk. I think that there's a lot of evidence about shifts in microbial communities being associated with disease states. And so basically, we think about our gut microbial community, think about a jungle, you've got that many species at the microscopic level, fighting with one another, working with your own gut and interacting with that working and interacting with the food you bring in. It's a complex stew of microbial species in there. And I've seen a lot of compelling work showing that there are difference in these species, who's there, how many of them are there with certain disease states. I think that there's less compelling evidence for some of these things being causal, meaning that just because you see the microbial community or that microbial jungle differ between patients in a disease state and patients in a healthy state doesn't necessarily mean that the microbes were the cause or that the microbes will be the answer to a cure. I would agree. I've heard and seen some stuff about the effects post-fecal transplant, which make me think that maybe there is. It's also very odd that it's so hard to do some of these some of these studies. Let's get a let's get a non-controversial question as a not ad- personal advice. What do you do personally to stay healthy when it comes to eating icky stuff? So, eating a balanced diet, exercising and maintaining low stress are things that we know make your own body more robust. And whenever we talk about microbe human dynamics with human microbiome, we are part of that discussion. And so being healthy yourself in terms of having a robust immune system, getting sleep, not being stressed is definitely what I try and do to maintain a healthier body. And reducing sugar. Sugar seems to be evil when it comes to the biome. I mean, I love donuts, so I don't think I'm going to make any big claims about hating sugar right now. <laughs> Dunkin' Donuts, if you guys want to reach out, you've got your potential sponsor right there. She can make the beer and you guys can start serving it to kids and we'll have fun with that. So we're we're transitioning into a phase where the world is changing on a health perspective. Med tech is coming on board. Biohacking is now a thing. And we're trying to push the envelope when it comes to longevity and what it means to be human. What are some of the exciting things you see in the industry? So we know that microbes interact with humans in different ways. And that can be indirect and direct. Indirect being that we know that they can make these molecules and compounds that can change our lives. For instance, statins, cholesterol-lowering medications, or antibiotics, microbes, uh, compounds that help us fight off microbes. We also are starting to learn that microbes can have a direct relationship with some of our behaviors. And that's nascent research, but I'm citing some of the work of Chris Lowry. And basically, microbes that can, that have shown promise to vaccinate against fear. And I think that this is incredibly exciting because when we think about longevity, we want to think about our bodily health, but also our mental health along that way. And so I'm excited to see where we can learn more about how microbes interact with our neurobiology. Talk a little bit more about the fear thing. Are we talking super soldiers? Or are we talking 
like take a chill pill. It's like you had a little bit too much and you're relaxed. So from the work that was done, most of it's done in mice models. And it's really looking at PTSD and that sort of trauma and post-trauma response and how this microbial vaccination can make the, the fear response lessen. So basically, that translates to me as you can live happier all through a microbe. And for and me, I, oh, go ahead. And I think that's just the tip of the iceberg in terms of how we can harness microbes to live better, longer lives. And for anyone that doubts stuff like this, the two best times to have sentencing when you're going to jail is right after or right at the start or right after lunch, because the judge is happy he's eaten and his tummy, his microbes no longer feel like they're going to die, much less hangry. There's so many there's so many implications when it comes to that. You talked about you talked about treatment resistant antibiotics. What's happening there? And is that an epidemic in the in the light weighing in the weight? Yeah, so. We all grew up in this beautiful time where bacterial and fungal infections weren't generally a huge concern. If you think about getting strep throat or an earache, the next steps you think about are going to the doctor and getting medication, not dying. And the concern is that, you know, pre-antibiotic golden era, pre-1960s, pre-1920s, we didn't have antibiotics that we could so readily use to fight off these rather common infections. The concern now is that many of these microbes are developing resistance to our known treatments, meaning that the antibiotics that used to work don't work on these microbes. That's terrifying because we get into a situation with methicillin-resistant Staph aureus, MRSA, or E. coli that are resistant to different antibiotics where the normal treatments that we would go to don't work. I think that it's well supported that this is becoming an epidemic, probably contributed to by a lot of the antibiotics that are fed to our domesticated animals that go into our food pipeline. And not only that, as we have more and more access to medicine, in theory, what doesn't kill you, at least when it comes to your immune system, generally makes you stronger. As we have more helmets and more shoulder pads on, humanity would be, in theory, getting weaker, yes? I think... Less rugged. I think it's more about the microbes are gaining new weapons against our weapons. So they're the ones that are really gaining the shields and the better armor. And so we used to have knives and guns and poison as different types of antibiotics. And now the microbes have evolved the ability to fight off knives and guns and poisons. And so we have fewer and fewer tools to fight similar microbes to the ones that we used to. Guards get guards get uh, bulletproof armor, guards or guards get uh, bullet piercing rounds. It's it's mutually assured as we scale things up. How do you think about the the effect of large scale agriculture, not animal agriculture so much, but farming practices? If so much of the bi- uh, biome and our eventual microbiome comes from farming and plants, how do you think about the scale of industrial agriculture and some of the pesticides that are being sprayed? So I think a lot of the microbes that we have in our life come from our interactions. Some of them come from our food, some come from who we're around. And so the natural question is what microbes are on our food and are they different from what they used to be given standard uh, agricultural practices today of standard agricultural practices of the past? And I think we really don't know yet the connection between what microbes are on and growing on our food and those that influence us. I think what keeps me up at night is knowing that 
we might be doing things that lead to the extinction of microbial species that we haven't yet discovered yet. So we don't know what microbes in the world might be critical to us, might be critical to plant health, might be critical to our own health, might be critical to the health of a lemur species that we want to protect. And yet we don't, we're still in the discovery phase of these species. And so it's terrifying to think about that species loss that right now is completely cryptic. And the species loss is one thing if it's a beautiful butterfly. It's another thing if it's ants that power the entire ecosystem of the world. How do we think about that discovery when it comes to biomes specifically? Uh, Sorry, to bacteria specifically, so that we don't wipe ourselves or something else out because of ignorance being bliss? Well, I think hmm, there are some really beautiful initiatives going on to discover And um, there are really beautiful initiatives going on to discover what microbes exist out there, both within different people's guts and out in the world, in soils associated with other animals. And I think the beautiful thing about microbes is that you can often grow these and stick them in sort of cryogenic freezers where they'll come back to life in the future. And so this is not a scenario of how do we keep an endangered mammal species alive or all the trials and tribulations of keeping pandas and polar bears in existence. We are at a stage where we can go out and find thousands of microbial species, stick them in a freezer and wait to future generations to find out what they can do for us. And so I think that this is an incredible initiative and I just wish there were more hands and more dollars going towards it. What about space? What happens in space where we don't have this? Do we ship this tree of life, so to speak, to space and start multiplying out the germs? Or what do we do? How do we handle something like that? I think that's a great question. So this is what terrifies me. A lot of people are excited about space travel and I'm terrified by it because I know that all of my favorite smells and flavors on Earth come from microbes. And if we don't decide to bring them on our future space travels, we'll never experience them in that future. So think about the flavors of chocolate and coffee and wine and beer and cheese, also the smells of soil. All of these are from microbes. So we're going to have to decide what microbes come with us to space. What are the microbes that will produce the best flavors of beer? What are the microbes that can withstand those stresses of space travel? We don't have all of the, we don't have the total understanding of what microbes exist on this planet. And I want to know what the best microbes are before we start choosing who gets to go on our next mission to Mars. And then there's War of the Worlds where we sneeze and suddenly all of the aliens die. That's a realistic situation, isn't it? Um, could you expand on that? Bringing microbes from one planet to another planet with no immunity, no tolerance. And it just wreaks havoc. I mean, when the Europeans came over here, they passed around the smallpox blankets so they could kill the locals faster and get the land. I think that there's always a concern of moving microbes from one space to another. But I think the good news with space is that we're not expecting there to be alien life that we would either infect or that would infect us. And so I think the biggest challenges will be just how do we keep things alive in this literal space that isn't really friendly to life. 
there was a fascinating time travel book that actually talked about that as an issue. Because if you did go back hundreds, thousands of years, if you bring anything back, there's a good chance you wipe them out or they wipe you out. So you really got to be careful with that kind of stuff. What technologies or trends are you most excited about today and why? I'm excited that people are starting to show more enthusiasm for microbes in their life. We can now talk about the microbiome and there's some interest in what technology comes from microbes. And that's exciting to me because there are microbes everywhere that are unknown but can do exciting things. So, for instance, Plastic. there are microbes that are remarkable at breaking down the things that right now are causing some of the biggest concerns for humanity. So plastic waste is something that receives a lot of headlines with due reason because it's terrifying. This plastic is going to outlive all of us. But there are microbes that can break it down. And so finding more of these microbes that can break down our waste products and finding ways to scale that uh, makes for a better tomorrow. I'm also excited about the microbes that can make new flavors. On a personal level, I want to know what my future favorite flavor will be. And I think it's so hard to think about what a new flavor would be. We don't have words for that. We don't have kind of creative capacity for that. And so I love the idea that there's an adventure in front of us that involves new understandings, but also new senses. I want to say it's Russian, but for the longest time, they didn't have a word for blue. So they just didn't see things as blue. They just categorized them as something else. And it's weird when you don't have that category. Same thing with flavors, I imagine, of how do you explain something that's never been experienced or explained? Exactly. So one of my favorite examples is that uh, yeast, certain yeast will produce a flavor in beer that we register as banana-like. You can get that in a Belgian beer. Now, it's creating the same molecule as bananas, but we never say, oh, this banana smells like a yeast. We say, this beer smells like a banana. And had we just discovered microscopic life before we discovered macroscopic life, our whole viewpoint on what tasted like what or what smelled like what could be different. How do you think about those dynamics of altering food going forward? We've got CRISPR, we've got a lot of technology, we've got hubbub about GMOs, some warranted, but most of it not. How do you think about the future of humanity creating what we consume and use? I'm hoping that I'm hopeful that new technology will let us consume in a more sustainable fashion and a more mindful one. So we start to understand that there can be unintended consequences with any changes that we make. And so it's, I'm hopeful that we'll do prospective work to make sure that we don't have as many unintended consequences. That's humanity's weakness, though. We like to move fast and break things. <laughs> uh, agreed. But I think I'll highlight that I'm hopeful because I'll go back to your question, which mentioned CRISPR. CRISPR actually comes from wild microbes. That's where we found this amazing tool that allows us to basically take scissors to a genome and change a life form. That all came from microbes. One of the microbes that it, that understanding came from, the microbe that causes strep throat. So this remarkable technology was no farther away than our own throat infections. So again, how can I not be hopeful when microbes that are around us are portals into future technology that will allow us to ask even bigger questions 
What about the bigger, scarier other side? People playing the devil, so to speak, when it comes to microbes, designing them, be that CRISPRing them, be that finding other super virus, not viruses, in this case, bacteria, but you can speculate on viruses and other as well. Do you get worried at all about bioterrorism? Humanity has a history of using new technology as great tools and then great weapons. And so I think that that concern exists with microbes as well. And I presented at uh, the DEF CON conference in the biohacking space this year, and that was a big discussion point, biosecurity. How do we protect ourselves from these future microbial monsters that people can make in their own kitchens? I'm hopeful that we'll put in place regulations that will increase the safety and reduce the likelihood that bad actors can make microbes that hurt humanity. Personally, I think that there are bigger concerns about the biosecurity of our agriculture system. We tend to be very human focused. What happens if someone makes a microbe that creates a human disease? But I think we need to be mindful about thinking about all of the other life forms that we rely on and how we keep them secure as well. That's a great point. Someone designed something to wipe out bugs, wipe out ants, wipe out all of the cattle that we're eating. We've got big problems. Is there any way to screen for that? I think that we have a lot of systems in place that keep us safe. So some things as simple as customs at border crossing tend to get frustrated that we have to mention if we've been on a farm or that we can't bring in fruits and vegetables. Well, customs isn't really caring that you bring in an orange or a fruit. They are concerned that you're bringing a microbe from a foreign place that could be a disease agent here. No, those are unintended. Those are not the result of... Uh, a bad actor engineering a microbe. But that same system, we can scale out to make sure that new microbes that we don't know how they can be dangerous are isolated so that we test them before they're ever introduced into the public. I know George Church, godfather of biotech, is a little worried about this. He suggested something like a fire detector for bad microbes for potentially harmful bio material. Is that even plausible? And how would we do something like that? I think that whenever you're faced with a specific question, it's just an engineering problem about how to put it into action. So that's a complicated way of saying that we already have detectors that allow us to understand if there are toxins in our food produced by microbes. We tend to do that small scale testing, but it's just an engineering effort to make that larger scale. So then we're testing for the toxins made for microbes on all of the food that comes in, not just through the pipeline and through the supply chain, but maybe to our homes. Yeah, the king had his uh, his poison tester just in case. Maybe we'll all have our own one of these days. That would be a startup right there, guys. I'm not sure you would get people buying it, but that would be a startup. What are you, what's the most interesting thing you've seen in the last week? It can be anything. I've been working with an artist on a pop-up art and science exhibit and one that uses augmented reality to provide a layer of information for the public. Uh, and it's been really fun to work with different groups on how we engage with microbes. So I will be honest and say that that's been on my mind recently. And how we engage with science. How do you see that as someone who does try to spread the good word, so to speak? What is the future of that as we move towards a world where a lot of people are rejecting outright logic and science? I think right now, when the general public thinks about science, the associations tend to be those of guilt or fear or pain. There's a headline telling us about climate change that's going to kill us all. There's a headline about plastic pollution that's 
our fault and it's making the world worse. There's a headline about a new disease. But that's not my experience with science. My experience with science is that learning about the species around us and where our medications come from, we learn that there's more hope because it's completely plausible that there are new therapeutics, new medications, no farther away than our dust bunnies. And so I hope in the future that scientists can share with the general public the joy and the hope of science and not just the pain and the sadness. Is the media paradigm of if it bleeds, then it leads ruining our future by pushing us away from a better future? I think the media are in a tough position because they're, uh, they're acting as a vehicle between scientists and the public. And we are, we are motivated by our fear, but we can also be motivated by our hope. And so while there have been many stories that are, that are going with that, if it bleeds, it leads, that doesn't have to be all the stories. And indeed, if we look at some of them, if we look at some of the media attention around uh, nature documentaries or things like that, that people are spending a lot of time enjoying these days, whether it's Blue Planet or National Geographic, there's a, there's a love of nature and appreciation for the excitement that that brings. And so I'm just hoping that that can uh, be fostered in the future. But do we need to get past the media for money paradigm to to really move the needle? Because the people that go for the documentaries are self-selecting. They already like that kind of stuff versus hitting the masses with the things that we're designed to respond to. It's dopamine, it's sugar, it's heroin, it's murder, it's sex. It's all of the things that make us feel terrible and fearful are the things that we respond the most to because we're evolved to survive above all else. I think one of our most remarkable characteristics is curiosity. And I've heard people discuss that there can be saturation of fear and there can be saturation of things that make us sad, but curiosity is insatiable. The more you learn, the more you can become curious about something. And so I think that harnessing that curiosity is powerful because it allows us to be excited about science and to continue to be excited about science. And so that's where I'm hoping the media drives in the future. Speaking of exciting science, let's talk about farts. I hear they came up with something to cut out a lot of the methane from cattle, that basically having cattle eat something and then they were farting out much less methane, which would be incredibly good for the environment. How does that work? I've broadly heard about this work, which is um, basically that not all farts are created equal. Some farts have methane in them. Methane being a compound that's a very strong agent of global warming. So if you could reduce this gas, this methane produced in these farts, it could have great consequences for the environment. It's often your microbes that dictate what you're farting. And so there are some microbes that make methane and some microbes that don't. And from what I remember about the study is that they uh, did some form of treatment that changed that microbial community, which then had the downstream effect of changing the fart substance. Silent, I, but less deadly. Sorry? <laughs> Silent, but less deadly. We had to throw the pun in. Yes. I'm on a terrible roll here. Is there something that, what are some of the bigger climate implications we can look at from a microbial side of things in terms of solutions to existing big problems? Microbes are remarkable at breaking things down. There are so many different species and they've been around for so long in evolutionary time that if there's something that exists in the world, there's some species of microbe that can eat it and break it down. And so when we think about some of our sustainability issues, what comes up is large amounts of plastic and 
toxic pesticides and compounds that stay in our environment for a long time. What's exciting is that by just looking towards nature and where microbes are that already have these capabilities, we can find microbes that can help us break those down and turn them into inert substances. So there's some work that's been done in terms of looking for microbes that can break down plastic. There are is other work with microbes that can break down some of the pesticides that stick around in the soil for a while. It'll just be a matter of scaling up these technologies in order to make our world hopefully better. How do we help scale those up? How do we put the funding behind that kind of stuff where there isn't an exponential outcome that's coming quickly? I think that there can be an exponential outcome quickly. So the work that I did commercializing a microbe that started off in a wasp and led to commercial beer in international markets That took 12 months from conceiving of the idea to finding the microbe to bringing the product to market. We don't have to think that all of this academic work is so far removed from industry application. I think what's critical is to foster relationships between academia and industry so that academics who are exceptionally good at feeding the innovation machine and taking on high-risk ventures are aligning some of their work with what industry needs so that industry, which is perfectly prepared to scale that technology, can then take those innovations and bring them to market. How do we facilitate that to make it smoother and more effective? One, I think, is going to be about a general understanding. So one is having people on both sides taking risks and building relationships because it's often in relationships that help move forward any kind of technology. Two, I think formalizing systems that allow for funding and information exchange in ways that feel equitable, ethical, and efficacious will be important. Three biggies, very important. I want to get into that, the the privacy side of things, especially as people are doing 23andMe. How do you think about privacy when it comes to not just, oh, he likes me on social media, but this is my actual core of who I am and my insurance company could totally screw me if they get this information. I think our information is powerful and it's often more powerful than we give it credit for. So I think when we talk about 23andMe or our personal genetics, it's important to think about the repercussions that that information has for insurance companies, for any bad actor who wants to use information against us. But I think it's also important to think about what other information are giving up that you don't think matters, but might matter in the future. So we know that studies of dust and the microorganisms that are in it, something as simple as a swab of dust can inform us about whether men or women are living in that apartment, whether there are pets in that apartment, something about the feeding habits of the people in that apartment, where that apartment might exist in relation to an ocean. And that's all from just a swab of dust. And so whenever we are giving information to companies, whether it's information about our own guts or about the inhabitants of our homes, I think we need to think about what could it be used in the future, not just what it could be used for now. So are you having or would you have an Alexa or a Google Home in your house? I do not have that technology in my house. Well played. I am very much of the same opinion. There's just so much out there. And if someone's trying to sell me something or sell me one or the other, I'm not that keen to give them ammunition. Are we are we headed towards a, a reckoning with that? Or are we on the slippery slope we can't escape? I'm really excited by the work of Tristan Harris and some of these groups that are working towards a more ethical future with our technology. And the first steps seem to be educating people on knowing how their data 
are being used against them now and then creating change so that we're more mindful in the decisions we make. Do we need regulations before we start getting into more of the genetic testing just to be able to have a, a foot on the gap, a uh, foot on the brake, so to speak? I'm not sure I can speak to you can't. That. You can speculate and that's okay. <laughs> Scientists can speculate too. It's all good. I would feel more comfortable in the future where we have a little bit more regulation around data that we give to the private sector, particularly that related to our health. And now I want something to blow my mind. What's something that could blow listeners' minds? It could be a possibility. It could be something you've come across. It could be something we haven't talked about yet. In the So statins are one of the most successful financially family of therapeutics in the world. Multi-billion dollars for these cholesterol-lowering drugs. They came from a fungus that was found in about the 1980s by, I think, Merck. This is a fungus that's in the soil and right now is likely on your shoe. It's everywhere. It's a very common species. And it makes this multi-billion dollar drug. If you're older than a millennial, it's likely that you had this microbe on your shoes and you never even knew it before it was discovered to be producing this medicine. Just think of what other microbes you might have on your shoe that could be the next billion dollar drug. I hear statins are actually a little questionable. But that's a that's a topic for another a topic for another podcast. How do you think about the dynamic between fungus and microbes in terms of the research that's going on? I know can't think of the guy's name, but they're doing some pretty interesting stuff with fungal species. Apparently, there's even more fungus than fungi than there are animals in the entire animal kingdom by a long shot. Absolutely. So fungi are much more closely related to us than they are the bacteria that we think of as also being microscopic. Both of them, both of these groups of microorganisms have incredible potential and microbes such as fungi, we know can produce some really remarkable compounds that have interesting effects on our own neurobiology. And I think we're just scratching the surface of what they can do. And you're scratching the surface of what we can do with microbes. And before you tell people where to find you, what's one thing you'd want to leave people with? A quote, a call to action, it can be anything. Our last hundred years featured human solutions to microbial problems, but our next hundred years will feature microbial solutions to human problems. Well played. Someone should coin that one. And tell me a little bit more about you, what you're doing, and where people can find you. Sure. I'm Anne Madden. I'm a scientist entrepreneur, and science communicator. I can be found at annamadden.com or on Twitter and Instagram at annamadden. And what is the next flavor of beer you are creating? <sighs> it's a whole new product that goes beyond beer, beyond cider, and beyond sake. Find out more at lachancia.com. If you can spell it, and if not, disruptors.fm will have links there because that is a tough one. That is one piece of advice from a startup guy is make sure it's spellable. That one's, I guess, la chancia if you kind of word it out. But it's uh, it's interesting stuff you're doing, so you may as well have an interesting name. Thanks for coming on today, Anne. Thanks so much, Matt. And thanks for tuning in, guys. If you've loved this conversation, be it dirty and punny as it is, then be sure to share this around with a friend. It's the most important, most valuable thing you can do for us. It's the biggest high five and awesome hug you can give us to make this a long-term thing that changes the world. We need disruptors on our team so we can disrupt bigger and bigger problems. Anne's doing it. You guys are doing it. Share it around and help us do it. Disruptors.fm, all the major podcasting platforms.
be the change you want to see in the world. That's something I strive towards and fail towards every single day. If you enjoyed this podcast, if you think the world could benefit from conversations like this, the greatest compliment you can give us is referring to the disruptors to a friend or talking about us on social media. Please take 30 seconds to do so. It would mean the world to us, and if we're lucky, help us build towards a better world. Thanks so much for listening. Thanks so much for helping us spread the message, and have a great day. If you want more of The Disruptors, you can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or go to disruptors.fm, where you'll find tons of audio and video interview stories with leaders in the fields of genetics, cryptocurrency, longevity, AI, space, VR, and much, much more. You can also follow me on Twitter at MattWardIO. If you enjoyed the show, please leave a quick review on iTunes at disruptors.fm iTunes to help more people discover the podcast and help us make a bigger impact.